This is Mark Mullinax, and you are listening to the podcast called Power for the Peaceful, a class on Taoism's primary text, Tao Te Ching, by Lao Tzu. Today, verse 41, Lao Tzu's smile. When you listen to the ground and you put your roots down, you can hear what she says if you're listening. When you listen to the ground and you put your roots down, you can hear what she says if you're listening. The sweet sound of the river as she moves over the stones. The same song that the blood in your body sings as it weaves around your bones. When you're listening, when you're listening, are you listening? There is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dimmed light, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness. This mysterious unity and integrity is wisdom, the mother of all, nature doing what nature does. Thomas Merton, Hagia Sophia. Three years ago, Fortress Press published my translation of Tao Te Ching. This class is a verse-by-verse treatment of its 81 verses. Today, with verse 41, we have crossed the midpoint of our long walk through these 81 lessons. Along our path, there are occasional bonus episodes, one of which is coming soon, on how Taoism may inform the hallowed, hard work and happiness of being a parent. Today's verse 41 is full of Proverbs. Imagine them being spoken by an ancient, wise person, summing up the wisdom of their long years to a younger audience. Or just as possibly, imagine a young person speaking their wisdom to us old farts with our old brains, so set in our ways we are, that to hear wisdoms that only the young with their elastic brains know is a liberation. Which proverbs speak to you? I mean, rather, which proverbs seem to kick your butt the most? Today we have a wonderful, wise reader who describes herself this way. My name is Jane Bramham. A late, beloved friend gifted me a copy of Power for the Peaceful, and our conversations on the trail led me to more reflection on this new-to-me message. Initially attracted by the non-personified greater power I felt some of the verses connect through my senses while I hiked hills and valleys and fly-fished mountain streams. I'm interested in how this seemingly easy comfort from and with the idea of an interconnected web in nature begs or needs to be woven and recognized into the peopled and messier part of the world. Today we are doing our recording at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Asheville, North Carolina in its building that contains the Carl Sandburg Hall. Jane will read a quote by Carl Sandburg about halfway through her episode. But now, please listen as Jane reads this episode's verse. Verse 41, infinite and infinitesimal. When a diligent person listens to Tao, she is diligently practicing its teachings. When a middling person listens to Tao, he practices it with middling effort. When an unskilled person listens to Tao, she ridicules it as unskilled drivel. 
Her mocking, however, only confirms, yep, that's Tao. Thus the following expression. At its most incandescent, Tao seems dark. Its smooth track resembles a directionless and obstacle-laden path. For every step forward, two steps back. Its supreme virtue appears empty like a valley and its clarity like a concealing fog. Tao's liberal virtue presents as tight-fisted or lacking, and its strength seems like something shabby, even stolen. Substantial truth appears like something soiled or contaminated. Consider, if you can, a square without edges, the greatest implement without a use, the most sublime music remaining on the page, or the perfect model without form. Hidden Tao goes about anonymously. Therefore, it alone knows how to complete everything. These proverbs are hard to explain. I won't try to explain any of them fully, for that would be hasty, bad teaching pedagogy, and so anti-Tao. Instead, do an intake of these verbs and let them marinate without hurry. I suggest this intake method. Write down the proverb or proverbs that mystify or kicks your butt. Post them on your mirror, on the dashboard of your automobile, or have them appear periodically on your mobile devices. The Tao way to understand them is not to confront or teach them directly, but have them permeate slowly, like a tea bag in a clear vessel of cold water in the sun. Slowly, the tea bag leaks its essence into the water. Another method is to treat the proverbs like a stranger, beside whom you sit at a stadium or own public transportation, a stranger with whom you start a conversation. They are not just a stranger, but strange. Not dangerous, but strange, as in a, the kind of conversation you have is a sort you've never had before. You decide to listen intently, closely, and try to include the worldview of your stranger, even try it on. This would be the mark of the diligent person in the first line of this verse. You want to get inside the verse as it gets inside of you. It is as if the same message keeps washing ashore, and no one breaks the bottles, much less the code. Marilyn Ferguson when we first read the Tao Te Ching and get to this verse, who has not wondered which of those first lines we are? The diligent practitioner? Or the middling person who may start but never finish? Or the unskilled one who just laughs in ridicule? Note, however, that only the ridiculer confirms Tao's power. This is not to suggest the ridiculer as our model or guide, but Sometimes the joker or clown is the very model we oh-so-serious and oh-so-diligent people need to break us of our self-satisfied or oh-so-serious student concentration to be the diligent ones. For some of us pride ourselves on being serious thinkers, which is one way not to handshake, headshake, and heartshake with Tao. For Taoism is, of all the world's spiritualities, is most like a clown, a joker, even a trickster. 
Indeed, to approach Tao with a light-hearted attitude could mean, for some of us, the most direct approach to understanding Tao. That wisdom is contained in William Blake's amazing and deep saying, The fool who persists in their folly will become wise. And sometimes, if you've been like me, if you are that person who considers himself all diligent and so serious, we are the ones perhaps more likely to miss the way of Tao. Thinking is not a virtue in Taoism, if that means the thinker rests too comfortably in their own conceits. I know I've been like this a lot. What if, what if we are to feel our way into Tao, like one perceives one's way in darkness? The more one travels the Tao way, and the more one seeks to embrace and to be embraced by Tao, perhaps that way of feeling our way is a path by which one feels or gets accustomed to Tao's way. Perhaps feeling and perceiving are the best indirect ways to know and understand and practice Tao. So, yeah, a diligent person will perhaps understand Tao more, or at least differently, than one who laughs at and yet confirms Tao. The diligent follower of Tao should, seems to me, understand that the ridiculer of Tao may actually be performing the trickster role that all genuine spirituality embraces. That is, don't take yourself so seriously. In Taoism and any other genuine spirituality, there are no guarantees that putting in effort yields a result equal to that effort. The diligent don't always get it, and the ridiculer may be most open to getting it. What's important is to park your ego and embrace other ways of learning, other ways, other Tao's of aligning with Tao. So whether you are a diligent practitioner or a middling dabbler or a ridiculer of Tao, I hope you find both patience and some satisfaction in being on the path of Tao. The world is full of magical things, wrote W.B. Yeats, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. Everything alive is connected to every other thing by fine, invisible threads. Things you don't see can help you plenty, and things you try to control will often rear back and bite you. And that's the moral of the story. There's even a thing called the Volterra Principle that I read about in my orcharding journal, which is all about how insecticide spraying actually drives up the numbers of the bugs you're trying to kill. Oh, it's an aggravation and a marvel. The world is a grand sight more complicated than we like to let on. Barbara Kingsolver. When you're listening, when you're listening, are you listening? When you're listening, when you're listening, are you listening? Sometimes, as in this verse, the Tao Te Ching text begins with obvious, head-nodding truths. And then as the text begins to build its case, do we get deeper? We get deeper and deeper into the mysterious world that created the text in the first place like walking out into the ocean until we lose foot contact with the ocean bottom. By the time we get to this verse's final section, we can feel quite, as some put it, carried out to sea. As I like to say, though, every promised land has its dead sea. But every dead sea contains the promised land.
So there's some promise and potential ahead, even if we have lost obvious foot contact with the sea bottom. So what then may we accept from this verse? How do we intake it? First, while Tao's unity and power are expressible, Tao is not easily caught by our meaning traps of words and logic. Neither being practical nor going deep in the philosophical helps us to catch its meanings. This is a poem for which meaning can hardly be squeezed out. Tao does not distinguish between the hugest infinite and the tiniest infinitesimal. While the infinite and the infinitesimal may both testify to Tao, the language of both is gibberish to our ears. Tao only points to and draws us certainty searchers into mystery, darkness, silence. A mystery dark and silent is something we can never interpret, but it is a power that ever shows itself in different ways and in multiform rhythms. We never tire of a mystery, such as love, but we do become jaded and bored with things that become popular, common, and oh-so-obvious, like corny love songs. Like when we use the same phrase, such as God loves, but we rarely deliberate what God or love are, much less what that shortest of sentences actually means. Likewise, Tao shows up in verse 41 without instructions on how to use it. This verse is no insert tab A into slot B schematic of assembly instructions that come with our IKEA furniture in a box. To think this kind of construction of a piece of furniture is also how life is, is only to swindle ourselves. Life's mysterious only points to more mystery. To frame Tao with words is to diminish its picture and power. The question becomes, can we practice mystery? We're good at practicing, even living within our descriptions of the world, but not so good at practicing mysteries. How does that even happen? It was all a swindle, an obscene swindle. They had set themselves up to describe the world. Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. Most of the great heresies arose from undue desire for simplification, an undue impatience with mystery and paradox. Donald Bailey. So here is my idea to practice this verse. Practice estrangement. Yes, practice becoming a regular stranger to the normal, the typical, and the everyday, so that we become more accustomed to feeling the world as strange, mysterious, and unusual. Practice, then, becoming unaccustomed to the customary. Practice the roads less traveled. Make your life a receiver for the news that never makes it to the organizations who organize the news for us. There's a famous line from a poet, William Carlos Williams. It is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Practice misfitting. Learn the ways of eccentricity, nonconformity, of the oddball. Why? Because this is how life is. Life is never logical. Life is paradox, never certainty. Logic and certainty are artificial harbors and temporary rest stops, but they may become perhaps those spaces to which we cling tightly. 
our oh-so-carefully-wrought thoughts and preconceptions over-civilize us, throw us off balance to understand things are right, mislead us, and misprepare us to feel the mystery and strangeness of life and Tao. What I'm getting at is this. Life is really strange and absurd if you consider it from an intentional estrangement standpoint. John O'Donohue's book, Anamkara, begins like this. It is strange to be here. The mystery never leaves you. For life is not Ikea instructions or a mathematical this equals that formula. Life is more the poem, one that you read silently, aloud, in groups, and our poems prepare us for the unusual and the strange. Carl Sandburg, writing in the March 1923 issue of The Atlantic, wrote, Poetry is an art practiced with the terribly plastic material of human language. Poetry is a puppet show where riders of sky rockets and divers of sea fathoms gossip about the sixth sense and the fourth dimension. Poetry is the journal of a sea animal living on land wanting to fly the air. Poetry is a search for syllables to shoot at the barriers of the unknown and the unknowable. Poetry is the cipher key to the five mystic wishes packed in a hollow silver bullet fed to a flying fish. Poetry is a fresh morning spider web telling a story of moonlit hours, of weaving and waiting during a night. Poetry is a pack sack of invisible keepsakes. Poetry is the capture of a flare in a deliberate prism of words. Seek out the poetic in the normal prose. See the strange by practicing getting estranged from the normal the obvious, the logical. For every step forward, two steps back. Practice abnormality. Practice the strange. Practice poetry. See the universe as a most unexpected place. This verse points away from certainty, but it does point to the true north of mystery. Only the dark reveals the light. The bitter defines the sweet. Only our wars, both inside and outside, are the prescriptions for the peace that must follow. Our spiritual practice must include becoming intentionally estranged from most or all of what we consider normal, normalized, standard. The normal blinds one to the mysterious abnormal. And the Buddha's fire sermon excerpt here shows why. And Jane will read that for us. Bhikkhus, when a noble follower who has heard the truth sees thus, he finds estrangement in the eye, finds estrangement in forms, finds estrangement in eye consciousness, finds estrangement in eye contact, and whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact for its indispensable condition, in that, too, he finds estrangement. He finds estrangement in the ear in sounds. He finds estrangement in the nose in odors. He finds estrangement in the tongue in flavors. He finds estrangement in the body in tangibles. He finds estrangement in the mind 
finds estrangement in ideas, finds estrangement in mind consciousness. When he finds estrangement, passion fades out. With the fading of passion, he is liberated. When liberated, there is knowledge that he is liberated. He understands. So we must estrange the world, make it strange again, because we have been so egotistically busy with making the world normal, understandable, and therefore reduced, stripped of its mystery, paradox, and trickster qualities. And this is, I feel, why Lao Tzu put these paradoxical proverbs in today's verse. They explore, like with our previous verse 40, Tao's unorthodox rhythms. Tao's motion is converse, returning to and not advancing from, taking the retreating way. When weak, Tao is most useful. Latency, not blatancy. Everything that is was once nothing. Pure potential. So listen again how verse 41 repeats the paradox teachings of verse 40. Thus the following expression. At its most incandescent, Tao seems dark. Its smooth track resembles a directionless and obstacle-laden path. For every step forward, two steps back. Its supreme virtue appears empty like a valley and its clarity like a concealing fog. Tao's liberal virtue presents as tight-fisted or lacking, and its strength seems like something shabby, even stolen. Substantial truth appears like something soiled or contaminated. I imagine Lao Tzu smiled as he wrote these lines. Consider, if you can, a square without edges, the greatest implement without a use, the most sublime music remaining on the page, or the perfect model without form. Hidden Tao goes about anonymously. I think he wants to confound our normal, upend our ordinary, have us stay still rather than getting our usual aerobic workouts and our jumping to conclusions. You see, a mystified mind is more use than a rigid, rational, efficient mind. The efficient mind is useful and oh so helpful for one thing, enabling some normalcy to settle in hardened, and then colonize our logic. The estranged mind, though, pierces the veils of normalcy. You see, our monkey minds need monkey wrenches to interrupt them. And today's verse 41 lines are monkey wrenches, cast into our so diligent thinking, that thinking that we have nurtured, oh, so carefully prepared, and are, of course, so proud of. The human brain is lazy, and hates paradox. It wants everything nice, smooth, simple. I mean, certain. No surprises. Our self-centered certainty is our Achilles heel, our dis-ease. It is our certainty that gets us into trouble. So make room for surprise. If your geography teacher told you that faith could move mountains, you might evince some surprise. If your mathematics teacher told you that in any given series the first would be last and the last would be first, you might think him inebriated. 
But I can tell you these things in sobriety, and you shall believe them. All I ask is that you learn to do so without attempting to understand them. Seamus Dean Likewise, as David Mitchell put it in his novel Cloud Atlas, Power, time, gravity, love. The forces that really kick ass are all invisible. A famous picture in East Asia shows Confucius, the Buddha, and Lao Tzu hovering over a bowl of vinegar, tasting it each in turn. Vinegar here might compare with the essence of life. You can search online with the search string vinegar tasters. And now I'll supply the picture in the YouTube version of today's podcast episode. With the vinegar on his tongue, the Buddha has a bitter expression on his face because he teaches about life as suffering, bitter, full of attachments. Confucius, though, wears a sour expression. To him, the present day was out of touch and out of step with the way of the past when the classics of poetry and history and government were written. So he feels perhaps he was born in the wrong age, or perhaps he felt sour that he had to be the one to reintroduce all those classic ways back into Chinese life. Remember, Confucius and Lao Tzu were contemporaries. Both supplied spiritual strategies to deal with the chaos and difficulties of that ego-filled warring states period in Chinese history. So back to the picture. Notice, though, Lao Tzu is smiling. Why does he seem to be the only one enjoying the vinegar? He was the first to taste the vinegar without any preconceptions. He respected that the taste of vinegar was supposed to be the way he tasted it, and to prefer it otherwise was folly to the max. So he uniquely tasted something about the vinegar no one else did. Life is already perfect. And he smiles. I think this is called mindfulness, awareness, mindful awareness, seeing the uniqueness of the now, the here, and the this. Beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will or sense them. The least we can do is to try to be there. Annie Dillard. So my friends, students, and comrades, my superiors, live like a poet, where the most prosaic and ordinary take on this gossamer holiness, leave behind the normal for others to tend, mend, and preserve. There are other fish, and they ain't in the fish tank, but are untamed, undefined, and elsewhere. Let's meet there. Homework. Practice estrangement in order to see, hear, feel, and think differently. For example, write and eat with your non-dominant hand. Reverse or randomize the order in which you bathe your body in the shower every time. Smile for no reason until you do have a reason. Maybe a sip of vinegar will provide that reason. Learn a new word each day and use it in conversation. Talk to random people about random things. Skip with children and then skip to work. Save an insect. Change your phone ring to your favorite cartoon song while you were a kid. See everyday things as unfamiliar. What exactly is a quarter? What is a phone? Make friends with the strange. Take a paperclip and make it into ten familiar 
and then ten unfamiliar things. Do such things and more to re-enchant the world, re-divinize the universe, and re-wild your life. For a new wonder appears around every corner. Little by little, by baby steps, undo yourself. Uncreate your illusions. De-story your algorithms so you can finally pay attention to all that is not you. Practicing these unfamiliars is jazz. They unfamiliarize your little s self and re-familiarize your larger capital S self with Tao. Because at the very bottom, our condition may be a flooded basement crammed with long unopened boxes filled with the certain and the normal just floating around. Life presents us with algorithmic certainty all the time. We get what we expect online, in our architecture, at the coffee shop, at our jobs, we get into these algorithmic fugue states and become those automatons we despise. Let's practice estrangement and reframing. Consider, if you can, a square without edges, the greatest implement without a use, the most sublime music remaining on the page, or the perfect model without form. Hidden Tao goes about anonymously. Therefore, it alone knows how to complete everything. And now, Jane, to your question. I love mystery books, but this is a different kind of mystery because the books come with the certainty that we're going to get the solution and we're going to also understand the why that the crime happened. Here in these mysteries, I'm thinking about um, when I wrote a credo for myself, um, I said that my faith lied at the intersection of knowledge and beauty. And by beauty, I meant things that we view with awe, uh, things that surprise or uh, move us. And I'm thinking too of my career as an oncologist and the necessity of scientific research for the tools to treat cancer, but the great joy of the work that came more from the care in medical care than the medicine of the care. My question is whether we can truly escape from the desire and the expectation to know truth in some way. Do we all really expect that someday, whether we do enough practice or do the right practice or in some afterlife, we will know everything? And how do we know when not to try to understand? What is that humility? And do knowledge and mystery really intersect? Mm -hmm. This is a deep question. Thank you very much. Um, First of all, you remind me of John O'Donohue, who has this wonderful quote that you should always carry around in your heart something that's beautiful. And I think that beauty is, uh, is a, an accompaniment to, to our best selves. Therefore, 
um, and, and beauty is, can never be owned. You cannot dissect it, weigh it, uh, spectrograph it. But beauty is something that is an enlivenment of who we are. And therefore, I like to think of, of beauty and to respond to your question with the word curiosity. When we stay curious, then we can ask something that comes to us that may not be pleasant. Why are you here? What's going on? When, you ha- when you're curious about, uh, about the world, then you, can, you don't have to own it. You don't have to, to manage it, or it, has to be, it doesn't have to be under your control. But it is, a, it is there like a kite that's, that's always dancing around you, but you don't have to be in control of it. You can hold it for a while and feel it's dancing, but you don't have to be the, the master of that kite. Uh, you, it's, it's a co, uh, a dance of two people or a dance of two things. So I don't know if I'm getting to the, your question was that uh, uh, will we ever get to the point where we know something well? And I, I think do we get at what point does the desire to know things yeah. well or too well get in the way of the mystery? Yeah. Uh, I think we can keep the kite metaphor going there because if we try to control that kite and make it do all the tricks that we want, maybe you're good enough to do that. But for someone like me, the power of the kite is in being in symbiosis with it Mm -hmm. and not having to be the, the, have my thumb on it in order to make it do my will. Uh, because that, I think, is the death of almost any vocation that we have when we want to be so good at it or so competent in it. Then we lose our beginner's mind, and we lose that sense of mystery that accompanies, I'm going to say after this verse, that mystery accompanies every millisecond of our life. And if we lose that mystery, then we lose the beauty. We lose the connection um, two lovers who know each other intimately and maybe can predict each other. But if they use that knowledge to control or manipulate, then the relationship sours, in my understanding. So to be a master, a PhD, an MD in one's field may be uh, exactly what you need to do to complete your life because it's it's a system that intrigues you and you're curious about it and you can see a kind of uh, beauty in that I, th- I think so and I think I think that what it why I was I guess why I was asking about humility with it is that y- you can keep if we say the curiosity and the desire for n- more knowledge but not feel a failure that we don't know everything um, or not feel that um, we have all responsibility, that we are responsible for to some extent, but not completely responsible. Yeah. yeah. From verse 1 through verse 81 of Dada Ching, the, uh, the sense of keeping the mysterious a mystery 
and uh, and keeping one's desires, the kind, the wrong kind of desires that take us into this kind of ownership and uh, ownership that you never let go of. Mm-hmm. That's the part that we need to be mm-hmm. aware of. And I think Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, helps us to stay loose with that and and uh, and have a, an open hand to mm-hmm. all the material that we think we have to own or or, or master. And uh, so. Yes, there's a mastery to it, but to continue in the mastery, to continue with the that that ownership, or the uh, even the point that I am an expert in this field, bow down before me. That's not what this is all about. You want you are sharing knowledge. You are not owning the knowledge. How's that sound? That sounds good. It sounds like the song, "Let the Mystery Be." Oh, okay. Do you know a few more verses of that? Iris Dement is the sings it. Okay. Uh, Let the mystery be. be. All Mm -hmm. right. That's one for us to go look up. Thank you so much, Jane. I appreciate you being here and uh, helping us with this podcast this week. Thank you. My honor. This podcast is an original labor of love, designed, written, and co-produced by many whose central idea is that Tao Te Ching is good news for today. Tao still speaks. Thanks to Jane Bramham for her readings and suggestions. Audrey Davis is our artist. Thank you. Molly Hartwell sings her song, Put Your Roots Down. Thank you. Fortress Press holds the copyright for quotations from my Tao Te Ching translation. Thanks to you for your attendance in this class on Taoism. May your days begin rooted in earth's wombs and mysteries and grow the fruit of radical hope. Are you listening? Are you listening?